We're here this week to think through a couple of questions. The first one is, who are you and how did you get here? Those are questions everyone needs to ask and everyone is asking and everyone has asked and you've been provided with a bunch of answers. The world says, well, it happened, uh, you know, 13.7 billion years ago, give or take a few hundred million years. That's uh, when it all started. And when it started to set this thing up and set it in motion, something happened that we uh, don't know and can't explain as they describe. There were other laws of physics that existed at the start of the Big Bang, which created then these laws that we don't know anything about, uh, the conditions for matter to occur, occur. So when all of this got going, there was something, and that's something we don't know, we can't explain, but it got, uh, got everything put in motion. Well, that's great. Let's just say that were to happen with some unexplained, unknown situation. Well, how did though we get here now? How are we as people sitting in this room and thinking and considering things and talking and singing and doing all that we did today? Well, the smart people in our world, like Richard Dawkins, the evolutionary bio, uh, biologist from Oxford University, uh, he's got uh, a real concern with you sitting in a church trying to learn about who you are, where you came from, with some preacher and a Bible telling you that uh, you need religion to figure that all out. Uh, he thinks that we need a cure from that, and he would love to see that happen. Matter of fact, that's happening all over our country, saying that really what we have done as evolved people is we have created God, right? God did not make us, um, but we made him. We kind of made him up. So we need to live as though he doesn't exist and uh, move on with our lives. And so when you ask people, smart people like, Richard Dawkins, well, how did we get here? He says, well, uh, when it comes down to it, there could have been some earlier time somewhere in the universe that a civilization evolved that designed a form of life because we're pretty complicated creatures here, and uh, they seeded it onto our planet. So somehow this uh, alien civilization that he says, well, it must have gotten there somehow kind of the way we got here, and they flew here in their spaceships, and they figured out that we... Um, you know, needed to be started here through some chemistry project, or maybe they just spit out of the spaceship, and somehow that living matter uh, took some time and grew into who you are today. So unknown laws that created a big bang almost 14 billion years ago, and then an unknown civilization that came and kind of made this all happen by uh, their chemistry experience, uh, experiment uh, 400 million years ago in the process of evolution. Um, well, religion does have a different solution to that. It says it wasn't some unknown thing by some unknown civilization, but there is a known God who created the world. The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is a creator, the Bible says, and that we should think through the reality of that because everything that we have in our universe uh, really speaks to a designer. That's why Dawkins and all the atheists of our world, and there's not as many as you might think, it's a very small percentage of civilization here today that would say that they are atheists. They would say, well, it's a very designed and complicated place that we live in, and we are designed creatures. We think, we have reflexive natures, conscience, we consider how things ought to be, we're creative, all of that, including the place in which we live. Like we have this ball of fusion out there that's 59 million degrees Fahrenheit and plasma is constantly spewing out of it at 280 miles per second and that produces enough energy every second to equal about one trillion megaton bombs going off 
Uh, every second it produces enough energy to fuel our world, if you were to be able to harness that energy for 500,000 years, in just one storm that is certainly orchestrated in part by that sun that's up there in the sky, uh, we have enough going on in one storm that would be able to then have the sun cool that, all of the rain that might take place in a particular storm, it would take us about 640 million tons of coal to evaporate all of that water. Uh, just to cool the vapors and get them back up into the sky and put them in the cloud would take about 800 million uh, horsepower of refrigeration working for 100 days straight just to get one storm to make things happen. A Minnesota farmer out there trying to farm food for the universe, or the uh, country rather, uh, they need about almost 500,000 gallons of water on their crops, and uh, that's all provided, most of it, with a little bit of supplementation from rivers and irrigation, but that is provided for free in this whole system that depends on that sun that's just the right distance from our Earth to have a perfectly suited inhabitable planet for people like you and I to sit around and figure out where we came from. The vastness of space filled with stars and planets and galaxies and pulsars and white dwarfs and black holes and blue shifts and all of these things remind us uh, that there's a lot going on in the universe that surrounds this world that on the surface of this planet is filled with all kinds of complicated things that create all sorts of beauty, all sorts of savory smells, all sorts of foods, colors, flowers, plants, animals, and human beings all sustained on a planet that is perfectly situated for that life to be sustained. And the more we look out into space, the more that we are impressed with the vastness of space, the more we look inward at how it all works and how our bodies work and how cellular uh, life works, we say this is a very complicated thing. That's why Dawkins even says, well, it didn't just happen through some explosion and the heating up of ancient oceans with volcanoes. There must have been some design to this. There has to be some kind of designer, perhaps it's alien life, uh, they postulate and consider, which of course is uh, pure fiction and fantasy and faith, and they say that we are trusting in a book and putting our faith in a God that we can't see. Everything about the theory of evolution and human origins in the Big Bang is all based on things that we cannot see, nor can we prove them. And yet the world functions with a tremendous um, unity and harmony that has all been put together and perfectly organized and harmonious. We've got a six septillion ton rock that we sit on right now that is spinning uh, think about this, at a 1,000 miles an hour at the equator. It is orbiting this sun. Uh, think about that as it spins at a 1,000 miles an hour. It orbits the sun at about a 1,000 miles per minute. So we're sailing around this sun, this ball of fusion that's out there. Uh, it's on a 580 million mile ellipse around that sun. Uh, on August the 8th, 365 days ago, we were in the exact same spot in relation to that sun as we were a year ago. All of this works in perfect symmetry and harmony. Uh, not only that, but we've got this uh, 93 million mile ball of fusion out there away from our planet, which is perfectly situated. It's a 238,000 miles from this uh, satellite called the moon that sits out there. And all of that is perfectly situated to create tides and create all that we need to make uh, life and all that we need to make uh, our seasons and all that we need to produce our foods, all of that is happening around us 
uh, all in proportion to the sun perfectly so that we have a sun that warms our planet by day. We have this nightlight in the sky by night. I often point this out, but the reason you can have an eclipse, which was like my fifth grade science experiment to create an uh, eclipse machine, uh, it is a reminder that we have a sun that is 400 times further away from the surface of the earth and a moon that is 400 times closer, but it also happens to be 400 times uh, smaller, which makes them perfectly symmetrical to one another from the surface of the planet. If you take two spheres and toss them out uh, randomly from the distance from where you are, uh, the ability for you to have those look exactly the same, they'd have to be exactly proportional distance in size. These are the kinds of things that no one can explain with random chance, and yet these are the kinds of things that we're relying on some laws of physics that no one knows and we're trying to figure out how we got here in a design that must have been a chemistry experiment by aliens that we've never seen and never met. Who we are and how we got here, uh, I think we're better situated in our thinking to say there must be a God who has created us. It makes sense. Not only that, this book that we're relying on is based on facts that God has put in place. More on that later in the week, but we're Reading a book that we understand has been written by God, and he says, here's how you got here. God made the planet, heaven and earth, and then he created from that planet human beings. God formed the man from the dust of the ground. All the minerals, all the material in your body are all found in the soils of this earth. And then God did something that is unique. He breathed into the first man the breath of, of life. And that is a picture of this inanimate object that's made of material like the dirt becoming a living animated being. And that's what he became, a living creature. And so this gift of life is given not only to Adam and Eve initially, but to every generation uh, since that time. So every baby that is born is not only made of material, physical material, but is filled with this life, this animated life that scientists can't explain. We don't know what life is. We can't even understand the difference between a dead organism and a living organism. We have to postulate all these ideas and theories, but we, we, we can't quite figure out this miracle of life. And the Bible says God created it and God sustains it. You have DNA, DNA cells in your body, which uh, are about every single one of them, just one single strand could fill about a thousand volume encyclopedia set, a thousand volume encyclopedia set. Uh, you've got cells in your body that are consisting of 60 trillion uh, component parts, 60,000 miles of blood vessels in your body. Every cubic centimeter of blood in your body contains four to five million red blood cells 60 trillion of those cells with 90 million atoms, I'm sorry, 90 trillion atoms in every single part of your body. And all of that designed with all different roles and responsibilities. Uh, you can just look at your hands, your skin, everything on your skin with nerve fibers shooting to your brain, giving you messages at a hundred miles per hour from the edge of your fingers to the middle of your brain. You've got uh, all of your fingers capped with nails, which are keratin, and that keratin is perfectly designed to do all the things that we do to function and, and fix things and get involved in the realities of our world with detail. You've got a cap of hair on the top of your head that is perfectly designed, some of the strongest fiber material out there. It's uh, 
It's a thousand times uh, stronger than, than steel wire in terms of how much it can be stretched without breaking. The elasticity of your hair uh, not only is something that keeps you from um, uh, having some kind of, of hat that is permanently fixed to your head, but it does protect you from the kinds of, of radiation and ultraviolet rays that come down on us, and it is a kind of shield to us, and that's one reason you hope not to go bald in your life. It also keeps heat in the top of your head, which is needed. Uh, you've got an eyeball, which even Darwin said, he admits that even thinking about an eyeball makes his theory seem ridiculous. On a moonless night, a dark, dark night, you can stand on a mountain, you can see a match being lit 50 miles away. You can't design things that way uh, without very intelligent scientific uh, expertise. These are the kinds of things that remind us that there must be some kind of intelligent designer that sits behind all of this. And the Bible says this repeatedly. Common sense makes this a reality. And the Bible says the human beings that he's made are very unique in that they were made in the image that he is in. God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And that's what we're here to spend the week thinking through. What does that mean? Who are we? Where did we come from? Those are two bound questions that we need to think through. And the answer in the Bible is that we are made in the image of God. And just for the sake of completeness, I want to remind you a phrase that you'll hear and just need to know after spending a week talking about the image of God, uh, where it comes from. Perhaps you've heard of the phrase imago Dei. Imago Dei comes out of the Latin Bible, which was the Bible for about uh, 1,600 years of church history, and that was the primary translation from Greek and Hebrew. And in the beginning of the Bible, it talks about us being made in the image of God. In Latin, the Latin language, uh, that is translated Imago Dei, not Imago Dei. If you're talking to a Latin professor, he would say it's Imago Dei. And the only reason I bring that up is because you see all kinds of I mean, at least I'm seeing more and more t-shirts and uh, even churches named Imago Dei, uh, places where people go and they talk about the fact that we are special creatures on the planet, Imago Dei, you see that a lot. All that is is a translation of the phrase, the image of God. And we're saying this week, let's think about who we are, specifically who we are in terms of being in the image of God. And that has a million implications, and we're going to talk about a ton of things this week, but first we need to talk about what it's not. When you think about the image of God, what are we saying? Talk about a dad and a kid, and you know they, they look alike. It's a smaller version of the dad. Is that what we're talking about? Uh, is it that God is uh, you know six feet tall and, and you know has a, you know wears a, a sports jacket that's uh, you know forty four regular? What 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 are we talking about? Uh, the Bible's really clear that we're not talking about the fact, as the Mormons would say, that we're made in the physical image of God. And the reason is because the Bible's very clear that uh, God is not a physical being. So there's no template that we could say God is a physical being and he looks like this and he's got 10 fingers and 10 toes. So God creates a being that has 10 fingers and 10 toes. Uh, God is spirit and the Bible's very clear. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as Jesus said when they thought he was a spirit. He said, no, look at me, touch me, feel me. I am not a spirit. After the resurrection, they were shocked that he was alive again. They'd watched him be murdered. And the point is that we cannot say we're made in some kind of physical template of God. That's not the case. Uh, you look at passages like 1 Timothy 6. It says, God is this blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone has immortality. It means he sits outside of the temporal creation that he made. He dwells in unapproachable light that no one has 
ever seen or can see. So there's no image. We don't say that God is made in the physical image. Uh, People are not made in the physical image of God because God doesn't have a physical image. And yet our picture of a father and a son isn't a bad place for us to start. Because just like a dad has characteristics and his son has characteristics, there is a picture there that we need to take out of this mindset of the, that we're made in this physical template of God. We're not, but we're made in a relationship with God, and we, ha- we share a lot of characteristics. Now, there's a lot to this, and we're going to deal with it throughout the week, all the implications of it. But let's just start with some basic things. If you, if you compare us to God, and you compare God to a rock, you compare us to God, and you compare God to a tree, uh, these are different, even though a, a rock and a tree have atomic and, and, and even biological processes going on. Uh, they're not what we would say living. They're not animated. They don't have what we have, what an animal has. Uh, there is something to God being the living God, as he calls himself in the Bible. And of course, we would say we know what that is. We're, we're living. God is creative. Matter of fact, he starts this world with the act of creation, the physical world, and then he tells these people, you go and and be creative. And we're going to talk about that this week. Uh, God knows right from wrong. He creates people that have a sense of right and wrong. Uh, Animals, uh, they might have a sense of being uh, concerned about their welfare, but they don't have a sense of, you know what, I shouldn't have thought that thought today, or I shouldn't really have been jealous of that person, or I shouldn't have barked at that person the way that I did. They don't have that moral Uh, intuitive conscience that we have. Uh, Relational, a lot of parts of God's creation have relationship with one another, but our relationship is much different, right? Uh, uh, Cats don't uh, sing uh, love songs to each other or record them or or, or dress up in a way that is going to somehow engage the uh, relationship at a level that we would in terms of the kinds of friendships and romance that we engage in as human beings. We're relational in a different sense, and God is too. He's a triune God, Father relating to Son, Son relating to the Spirit. Volitional is a big word that simply just means that he makes decisions. He can make a decision to do something that is creative or something that is moral or something that reflects his relationships. Uh, He does things. He chooses things. He's a leader. We, of course, are leaders. We're going to talk a lot about that this week in terms of how we're supposed to reflect the image of God in the things that we do as leaders in our world and in our relationship. We're rational. We're able to sit and think abstractly. We're willing, we're able rather to think about ourselves. God has plenty of discussions in the Bible about what he thinks and how he reflects on what he does, and we can do the same thing that's not the same in any other part of God's creation. There's emotion. There's a sense of a kind of depth and richness and dimension to our emotions, what we feel, things like love and justice and beauty and those kinds of things, and that's just not the case Uh, in any other part of God's creation. Now, I know in our day, and we're going to talk about this tonight, a lot of people think, well, of course, you know, animals, uh, they're precious and wonderful. We love them, and they're part of the family, quote-unquote. But they don't have any of that, even though they have life, they're living, right? And they have certain aspects that are unique and superior to inanimate objects, non-living objects. uh, And yet, we're going to see that there's a distinction between everything God made including animals, even the most sophisticated animals, even the orangutans and chimpanzees and apes, we're going to say, God has done something different in you. They're not sitting around in clothes, wearing tuxes to special events, building hospitals, putting museums together. It's a completely different reality in terms of who they are and who we are. And the Bible makes it clear. There's always a distinction. 
And when we think about the vastness of space or the complexity of our bodies or all the things that go on in this world, we think, how is it that God would even care about us or think about us because he is an amazing God of creation. He's over all these sophisticated things. What is man that you're mindful of him, the Bible says? What is the son of man, the children of man, that you would even care for him? Uh, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And there's a whole other class of beings. And we can touch on this later in the week. These angelic beings that are also made in his image. They have a reflection of his personality, his volition, his emotion, all those kinds of things. There's a unique kind of image of God that we're created in, but more on that later. We're made a little lower than them. They have some abilities that we don't have. And you've crowned human beings, us, with glory and honor. We have that in comparison to the rest of creation. You've given him dominion. That's really in the first chapter of the Bible. We have a kind of leadership, a kind of responsibility and stewardship over all the works that God made. Right? We are the ones that put leashes on dogs and walk them around. We are the ones that take the raw materials of this world and we turn them into resources for good. We make clothing, we make iPhones, we make computers, we make buildings. These are things that we do over the raw materials that God has given us to show dominion or leadership over. You put all things under our feet, especially animals, right? All the sheep, all the oxen, all the beasts, the fields, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea. It goes on and on and on. We've been made in God's image, and that puts us over all the creative order. Everything in the world is, is, is subservient to human beings and ought to be. We are not just an evolved animal, and we are not just part of an ecosystem that we need to find our humble part and space in. Everything in the world, including every quasar, the moon, sat, the rings of Saturn, all of those were created for us. Human beings are the crowning achievement of God's creation. That's the first implication I want to make as we start our discussion about what it means to be made in the image of God. Nothing else in this physical created world is made in the image of God. Everything else is to be seen as under our feet. Everything else is less important than human beings at any stage of their development. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. Everything that God has done in creating human beings sets them radically apart. You are the distance between you and a frog and you and a dog, and you and a rock, this is something so radically different that you need to see people are special in every way, and they are to be valued as superior over everything in creation. Creation was made for human beings. Now, that's not what Greta's going to tell you. Greta's mad because Greta is out there saying, if you don't know who this is, I'm glad, congratulations, but uh, she is, is, is one of many in the world that will say what you need to be concerned about is Mother Earth. What you need to care about is the humble place you should have in creation. And the first implication of the image of God is for you to say, okay, when I look at the culture, it keeps talking to me about the creation of, of, of this world. They don't talk about the creation of the world. They talk about Mother Nature, nature. Right? Uh, they see us as some small component part of this, and we're no more special right, than a Bengal tiger or a cheetah right? or, or even a flower. Right? So uh, that's, the, that's the perspective. As a matter of fact, one of their journals, their scientific journals, is called Earth First. Right? This is their, their sociological environmental journal. And here are some of the samplings of the kinds of things you read from the people, the educated university professors that teach about this stuff. For instance, They think about the importance of the earth being primary and really our mother earth, right? This is the most important thing. They they would say things like this. Dave Foreman, for instance, who writes for the Earth First Journal, says the extinction of the human species, that's you and I dying out and not being on the planet anymore, may not only be inevitable, it would be a good thing. 
And let's just think, first of all, this entire universe and everything in it, including this earth and everything on it, here are these people that are so lost in their thinking that they say everything about you being here is scarring the earth and using up its resources. And all of this talk that's been going on now for decades in the modern era, trying to say it would really be good if we could all just get out of the way and let the earth do its thing without us here. I mean, this is, this is common thinking among the extreme environmentalists. Phasing out the human race will solve every problem on earth. Um, okay, I guess you're following the thinking now, right? Every social problem, crime problem's gone if we're all dead, right? And, and you know what? All the issues of, of, of cutting down trees to build our houses and put this auditorium together, not going to have that problem anymore. Most of the environmental nonsense that you hear in junior high and high school, and you certainly will hear in college, is based on the kind of foolishness that says they right, the trees, the plants, the animals, really should have superiority in God's creation. Everything about who we are, where we came from, says, no, that's not the case. We're not evolved slime. We're not some kind of cosmic accident. We're not the product of random chance plus time, right? We are the crowning achievement of God's creation. We are created in the image of God to be like God, exercising leadership on this earth, reflecting a unique superiority over everything God made. Uh, more examples of this. Everything we've developed over the last hundred years should be destroyed. That's the thinking of the modern militant environmentalist. You need to make sure that all the things that we do, our carbon footprint, how we live in this world, you need to just eradicate all of that. You should go back to being the hunter and gatherer that they believe our ancestors were, our knuckle-dragging Neanderthal ancestor. That's what we need to get back to, right? This is the way they think. Another article from the first uh, Earth Journal, John Davis continues, I suspect that eradicating smallpox was wrong. We shouldn't have stopped these things from killing off, off humanity, right? It, was, it played an important part uh, in, in balancing the ecosystems. If we can have less people on the planet, that's a good thing. We're going to see all these tie together. If you do not believe in the image of God that we got here by God's special act of creation, that we reflect God's character, Right? then it makes sense that you would want to, for instance, be pro-abortion. We want to make sure, and we'll talk about this a little bit, that Margaret, Margaret Sanger, who was uh, the, the head of Planned Parenthood, the founder of this movement, uh, it was all about kind of eradicating parts of society. And that makes perfect sense when the earth is first. And the earth is always going to be first for someone who thinks logically through the fact that we got here by a random explosion right, 14 billion years ago, and that 400 plus million years ago, we somehow kind of evolved slowly from, from you know, the, the hamster stage and the, and the flatworm stage to get to where we are. This all makes sense. And people that don't see this, unfortunately, don't see the consistency of believing that we are a cosmic accident, living in a world where these things were here before us. Therefore, we ought to see ourselves as servants to it all. We could just have a good eradication of a good contingent of our human life, things would be better. Kenneth Boulding says, Oxford grad, super smart person, human happiness and human fertility, right? Having babies is not as important as a wild and healthy planet. What's, what's important is that we don't build more houses. We don't have more places to go to eat, restaurants, farming. We just need to let things be whatever they are. Your happiness and your reproduction, right? That's not as important as, as our planet. Some of us can only hope that the right virus can come along, right? That's what we want. We want a virus to kill off humanity. Um, one more, Edward Abbey says, I'd rather kill a, a, a human being than a snake. 
Right? When you really think that everything on this planet that preceded us, some evolutionary process, that we're not a special creation of God made in his image, then you can understand people saying, you know what, if I had a choice between killing a human being and a snake, I'd rather kill a human being. And that's not crazy thinking, that's logical thinking if you really believe in natural selection and you really believe in the chaotic theory of how we got here without a special designer named God who endowed you with glory and honor. This is the worship of the planet that you're going to be hit with in increasing measure. It's going to continue. You'll hear more and more of this. You'll have a lot of college uh, friends and people in your, in your circles that are going to push this on you. We've got it in, in Congress. We have it in the Senate. We have it in our culture. We have it everywhere. And we need to remember that the Bible spoke to this long ago in Romans chapter 1. These people claim to be wise. They work at big universities across our country and around the world, uh, but they're fools because they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God, which he is endowed, by the way, in human beings to worship and, and, and understand the greatness of that God. And they've said, we don't want that. We really care about just ourselves. And not even that, we can degenerate into, I care more about birds and animals and creeping things. You got a dog, you got a cat, you got a hamster, you got a fish, you love those things. That's great. God has made those for you to enjoy, right? But you need to understand that they don't, uh, that they're not superior to you. You are not made for them and getting in their way by living here, right? They are made for you. And the Bible says people have exchanged the greatness of God's order and put animals above and the earth above God and what he's taught. They've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And the reality is when people want uh, snakes to live and humans to die, which is really a logical extension of their philosophy, right? They're worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And if you worship the creator who made us, he'll, he says the people you ought to care about that are here as the primary supreme residents of the planet aren't the cactus, aren't the flowers, aren't the, you know, the, the oceans and the rivers. All of those are useful for us, but he really has made this world for us to express his glory, and he's going to rebuild this world, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Let me make one more observation about that as I start to think about where you live and where you think, well, I don't think I would rather kill a snake or a human than a snake. I'd rather kill a snake than a human. Well, great. Some of the subtleties of the way we unfortunately worship and serve the created thing rather than the creator, and we don't see the important part of the image of God being our creativity, our leadership, our rationality, our, human, our emotions, our, our volition. We don't see that as important. What we really care about is an extension, really, of the naturalistic philosophy that we really care about how things look, for instance, like your body. And you need to be careful in this regard because this is a more subtle extension of missing the importance of the image of God. And the Bible's always trying to remind us that God is looking not at the outward appearance. That's not the important thing to him, how tall you are, how fast you can run a mile, uh, you know, how many push-ups you can do, how you look, what your measurements are, uh, how the proportions of your body are. That's not the important thing. God can reject a person for not understanding him or living in accord with what he's asked us to do in worshiping him. Um, no matter how good-looking or how good-looking she might be. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, which is just a subtle way that Christians can reflect the nonsense of the, of the environmentalist who doesn't understand the importance of who we are made in the image of God. God is concerned about our heart. The Bible keeps talking about that immaterial part that reflects God and says you need to make sure that you don't get into 
some Christianized version of really thinking that the things on the externalities of my life are more important than what's going on inside. Being made in the image of God, as we'll see, is about the relationship we're supposed to have with God, the role that we're supposed to play in this world. And some of us, unfortunately, just care about the external. The Bible says, don't let your adornment or what people think of you be all about how you look, the external things. He's talking here to gals in this passage, uh, the, putting, uh, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry and clothing what you'll wear. He says to these gals that are so obsessed with how they look, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. That's who you're made in the image of, not the physical exterior of, of God's image. There is no such thing. God puts you in a container, and we're all different shapes and sizes, but what he cares about is your heart, the spirit of your heart, the gentleness or the quietness of your spirit, the congeniality of your spirit, the, 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 the beauty that you have internally. To God, that's precious in his sight because God is not a physical being who's saying, here's how you need to look physically. Proverbs says, as a matter of fact, people can be so obsessed with this, it's just deceiving. The outside of you may look good, you may be fit, you may be an athlete, you may be talented on the outside, uh, but that can be absolutely deceitful because the inside can be a mess. Beauty can be a vain thing, but Bible says what matters is you reflecting the image of God as we'll explore this week from the inside. The one who fears the Lord, who understands the greatness of God, who understands the order that God has put in place, that's the person who is to be praised. So let's all get fat and eat Cheetos. No, the Bible says bodily training is of some value. There is value in that because if you eat like that for the rest of your life and you don't care about you know, being somewhat in shape, you are going to limit your life and not have time to glorify God as much time as you would otherwise. So you're supposed to take care of yourself. That has some value, but what really matters is godliness. And we'll talk about what that means in relationship to the image of God. We need to reflect God and his values in our heart and relate to the God who's made us. That has a value in every way. It's better for you to spend time in your quiet time than to get in your workout in the morning, right? Because one has a greater value. As a matter of fact, godliness holds a promise, not only for the present life. Your life will be better, even if you are an ailing, overweight, ugly person in this life that has a godly heart that's beautiful in God's sight, the spirit that you have and that you are connecting with God and doing what God asks you to do, that holds promise for the present life, and not only that, for the life to come. God is going to reward that, and we're going to see that the things that matter aren't the externals, not only the things that you see in the animal kingdom or in the world, but even how you look in the mirror and consider yourself. Now, we all have a problem with this. The reason we struggle with this is because we don't see ourselves correctly the way that God wants us to see ourselves. And that all started back in the garden. If the image of God is what I just said it is, that God made us in his image to reflect him in this world, you would think that things would be a lot better than they are. Well, it all went wrong uh, when God made a, a command and he said to these people that had this capacity to make decisions, Adam and Eve, uh, he said, there's this tree in the garden and you're not supposed to eat of it. Matter of fact, the day you eat of it, you're going to surely die. So the image of God, you think this through now, and God, these two beings here, the triune God and the individual that sit in this room, if we are made in God's image, right, then it shouldn't be hard for us to see and value the things that God does. We should be in good relationship with God, but everything messed, got messed up in Genesis chapter 3 because they didn't heed God's command in Genesis chapter 2. It's like in a relationship. When you as, as, as students start to act like you're the parents in your home, that twists around and perverts God's order in the home, and that's what happened in the garden. Here are God's children acting like they're the boss. They tried to flip this thing around. They perverted God's authority, 
and everything got messed up, including the damage to the image of God. And we're going to look at that throughout the week. How has the image of God been damaged? A lot more on this. I just want you to think through the way that temptation took place. Maybe a few things to pick up along the way that God might be trying to have you resist in your life right now in terms of temptation. If you read Genesis chapter 3, you'll see five things that Satan, who'd already fallen into sin and marred the image of God to what extent it exists in the angelic class, it was all marred in their reality, and it was about to be marred in our reality on earth for human beings from the time of Adam and Eve on, because he's, he's appealing to them to be promoted. You are, you're more important than God is making you out to be. You really should be in charge. Matter of fact, if you're in charge, no one should tell you what you can and cannot do. And the older you get, the more you work through society, and the more you deal with school and, and classmates and philosophy in the world, the more people are going to do exactly to you what Satan did to Adam and Eve, which is you need to make sure that no one tells you what you can and cannot do. If it doesn't make sense to you, uh, right, then, then do whatever you want to do. If they tell you to do something that you don't think is what you think you want to do, well, you should be in charge of your life and you should be making your own rules. You should not be concerned about someone putting restrictions on you. As a matter of fact, they'll always get back to what does the Bible really say? We're going to talk about things this week like your gender, like homosexuality, like uh, issues of intoxication. We'll get into all kinds of issues throughout this week that relate to the image of God. And a lot of people are going to go, well, I'm not sure really the Bible says that. And, and that's the whole job of your pastors and your leaders is to make clear what God did say. And every temptation, the things that started the damage to the image of God, which will continue to mess up the image of God in you now, is going to be an appeal to that promotion it's going to be that kind of aversion to restriction. I don't like anybody to restrict me. And it's always going to be an argument about what God said or didn't say. And that's why we're supposed to be students of the Bible. Fourthly, it's all about doubting God, that God doesn't really want what's good for you. If you can't have what you, you want, one of his restrictions is in your way. Let's say you're a guy that wants to be a girl, which is really popular these days, or girls that want to be guys. All of that kind of stuff, if someone says, no, you can't do that because God said you can't do that, and to reflect the image of God, you ought to do what God says, right? they're going to go, well, I don't think God has my best interest in mind. He's restricting me from what I want. God is not good to do that. We're going to look at that as it relates to the damage to the image of God, and all of those things are all a part of the temptation of Satan trying to get us to further mar and destroy the image of God in us. And of course, it's all about an appeal to self-direction. Do whatever you want. You ought to be in charge. You are the master of your life. You should be the captain of your life. And sadly, a lot of your parents, even Christian parents, have aided all that by saying to you since you were a little kid, I just want you to do whatever you want to do. Right? Be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want. Well, none of that's true, by the way. You can't do whatever you want. Uh, you, a lot of things you can't do that are absolutely impossible for you to achieve. Even if you were to go to the Olympics and earn gold medals, there's a lot of stuff I can say to every one of those people you cannot do. Not only can you not do it just because the Bible says you can't, you can't possibly do it because it's impossible to do it as human beings in many situations. But they'll still say, well, I want to be able to do whatever I want. And that's exactly how Satan appealed to Adam and Eve. And when they chose to follow their own direction and fall into those sinful temptations, the Bible says we had this thing called death, right? The wages of sin is death. And I want you to think through this as it relates to the image of God and several other things this week. But death is having you, right, with someone that you love 
and having that death take place, that if someone died, then you start crying and you say, well, I don't have a relationship with that person anymore. And that really is what we're talking about. Death is separation from a person, even though their body might be laying there, I'm no longer able to relate to you. That's what death primarily is. It's a state of you being out of relationship with the person that has died. And the Bible says the day you eat of the fruit that's on this tree that I told you not to, you are going to die. In other words, to me, you've heard the phrase, you're dead to me, to me and you, we're going to have this separation. It's like an argument in a relationship where you have two people that may be in the same room, but they're absolutely at odds with one another. That's the separation that sin has created, and you can continue to compound that. And we'll see the implications on the image of God as we go through this. But we need to know that's what sin does. It makes a separation. That's what death is. It's a separation. Sin causes that the wages of sin, the product of sin, the outcome of sin is increasing separation from God. And when you separate yourself from God with increasing sin, you've got a real problem in that God then and you, it, you create this, this chasm, this barrier, this wall. We need to fix that. And some of the images or some of the expressions of that are we feel guilt and shame. The more you sin, the more you see that image of God and God out of sync with one another in your life, uh, you have guilt and shame. The man and wife hid themselves when they sinned. You had pain and suffering. God said in Genesis chapter 3, you're going to have more pain and suffering in the world because you, though made in the image of God, should have all of the kinds of blessings that God has. Unfortunately, because you've chosen to sin, there's going to be increased pain and suffering in your life. Those are the kinds of things, separated from God, pain that is inflicted as a punishment. Uh, We see the brokenness of the image of God in us, and we'll explore that. And then God said, I'm going to give you a world that matches that. Matter of fact, when I was at the university, University of Arizona, when I was studying in in college, uh, this was the problem that my philosophy professor kept having. He said, I can understand your theology. He was telling me this, and we had a Um, a textbook that was all about this, that you say that we have problems in this world because of sin. He says, I can buy all that. All of it makes sense. I just struggle with the fact that we have a sinful world. And again, I can open up my Bible and say, well, the reason we have a sinful world and a broken world, right? We have broken people because of decisions to sin, but we also have a broken world because God said that's part of the penalty of you living as sinful people you're going to have a sinful world. And by that, I mean, it's not going to function the way it's supposed to. There's going to be hurricanes, typhoons. There's going to be tornadoes. There's going to be uh, lightning storms. There's going to be wind storms. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be things like the coronavirus that's going to come, going to make people sick. It's going to have some people killed that you, you know. All kinds of things have happened. Spanish flu, smallpox, measles before the vaccinations. We have all of these things that are going wrong in the fabric of creation. And of course, though relational death is what it means to be separated from God, physical death was a part of the product of all that. And so all of us have this issue, being made in the image of God, that we say, if I'm made in the image of God and God is this great, eternal, immortal being, uh, why am I not reflecting that in this world? My life's full of problems. The world itself is full of problems. My body has all kinds of problems. And then I even have people in my life dying, and I know that one day I'm going to die. All of this doesn't seem right. Well, that was part of what God had promised. He said in Genesis 3, you're made of the dust. Because of your sin, you're going to return to dust. This place I've got where we're going to have perfect fellowship called the Garden of Eden, I'm going to drive you out of that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to put up a guard. This is before the flood when you needed that because it was all destroyed at the flood. I'm going to have a guard there, an angelic guard, a cherubim, 
and he's going to have a sword, and he's going to turn you away so that you can't go and eat from the tree of life. Because if you do, you'll live forever. We're never going to be able to reset this thing with something called physical death and a physical resurrection. So you can't have this eternal life, at least not here and now. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says that uh, Christ came to solve that problem. Christ came and he said, I'm going to be the penalty of the sin that was created in the Garden of Eden when you fell to the temptation in Adam, and then you've compounded the problem throughout your life in sin, but I'm going to come and absorb that problem by dying in your place. Not that I think you should remember this or you've ever read him, but there was a guy in church history named John Owen who has the best book title ever, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And when you think about the problem of sin and what happened to the image of God in human beings, that not only was it damaged, but it caused all the problems in the universe, it caused all the problems in creation, it caused all the problems in our bodies, it caused all these problems in relationships. But Christ came to die, which was the penalty that we were supposed to incur, right? He was going to die so that he could put death to death, right? The death of Christ put death to death. Just a great way to put it which is really what the gospel is all about. The church is about the fact that Jesus Christ did something that was horrifically painful. He died as a, as a tortured criminal, even though he had never done anything wrong, that he was one who was whipped. He didn't just get his head chopped off or run through with a sword. He was first whipped all day. He had thorns crammed into his head. He was hung up on a Roman execution rack which was used, these Roman crosses, not to kill you, but to torture you and then kill you. He was made a spectacle, and even all the TV shows or movies you've seen or pictures, they all have this loincloth on, right? They were completely stripped naked. You've probably never seen a real picture of a crucifixion because they were all naked as people gathered around, and mom said, look, here's what happens to criminals in our society. And you hung there to suffocate on this, uh, on this rack that was created for malcontents and thieves and murderers. And Jesus came, this second person of the eternal Godhead who is perfectly holy, to die on this Roman execution rack because we had a problem that he never had. He never strayed from the will of his Father, but we as created beings strayed from the will of our Father. And the Bible says because we strayed from God, turning to our own way, God then had to lay our penalty, the iniquity and the sin that we committed, right? It had to lay that on him. The Lord has laid on Jesus, right? The iniquity or the penalty for the sin of all of us. That's the ultimate act of love. This doesn't look like love. Love seems like it would be a good feeling thing. The cross was a horrible feeling for Christ. But in that act of dying on the cross, the Bible says that while we were sinners, he dies so that death will no longer be the problem for us. Not just physical death, but relational death. There's no greater love than that. No, no one has greater love than to die for someone else. And you might see someone in stories you've heard dying a physical death for someone so that they wouldn't die a physical death. That's one thing. But Christ came to solve the problem of eternal punishment because of our sin. He said, you will not have to be separated from God. You will not have to have any penalty for your sin. You don't have to be excluded from the afterlife of a place that's perfect because I'm going to send my own son to die in your place, take on the penalty so I can fix this damaged image of God and create the relationship that I intended from the beginning. 
really this camp ultimately is about making sure you not only understand who you are in Christ, I'm sorry, who you are as a creature, but who you can be in Christ. That you can be someone that is completely new. You're completely forgiven. That you can never have the effects of sin in your life. That's the promise of of the gospel. And this verse that you've known since you were a kid, if you haven't known it, here it is, the central most famous verse of the Bible. God loved the world so much, he gave his son, had him tortured and crucified and killed, so whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. The problem is, some of you here think, well, I know what that is, and I've already done it. I believe in Christ. And you think this is all about you and your mind agreeing with something. And you say, well, I believe that. Matter of fact, I believe there's a God. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus died for sin. I believe that Jesus even died for my sin. That's what my parents and my pastors have told me to do. I even believe that Jesus is in charge of the universe. I believe all that stuff. Uh, That is not what believing in Christ means. Matter of fact, the Bible goes to great lengths to prove this to us. It says, you know, the demons that are out there tempting people to sin, they believe, right? And, And they shudder at that belief. Right? You believe, and, and you think, well, I believe it, so I guess I'm all right with God. There was a demon that spoke through a person in Jesus' ministry. He cried out when Jesus approached him and confronted him. He says, what do you have to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, you've come to destroy us. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. If I can get people to say, hey, who is Jesus? Oh, he's the Holy One of God. I know he's from Nazareth. I know who he is. I know what he came to do. We think, oh, we got a Christian on our hands. These are demons that hate Christ. The the Bible makes it very clear. We have to believe in Jesus. And that's a very different thing that many of you have not done. You've heard that you should believe, but you don't know what belief is because you don't understand this little word, I-N, believing in the Lord Jesus. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Look at these phrases. Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's very different. If I say, I believe you, I'm saying, I affirm whatever you said, I agree with you. If I say in a context, I believe in you, you understand that's a completely different thing, right? If you say, I believe what Jesus said, but if I say, no, do you believe in what Jesus said? I believe what Jesus did. Some people think I'm saved if I do that. The Bible says you have to believe in what Jesus did. And I just want you to understand the difference between those things. And many of you think, I'm fine with God. It'd be great to learn about the fact that I made the image of God because I'm special. I'm more important than all the things God created. That'll be great. I'll learn about some of the implications and I'll see if I want to follow some of that throughout the rest of my life. But you need to understand you're not even right with God and you will be excluded from God's family at the end of this life. You're part of his creation now, but you'll be cast, the Bible says, into outer darkness unless you believe in him. And the difference is that you could say, uh, you know, if I said, I can fly this plane, right? And, and, and you say, well, I believe you. That's one thing to say, I believe in you is something else. That means I know that you can do this and I'm putting my trust in you to do it, right? Everyone who's going to get on a plane, if I say I can fly it and I say, great, we're going to go to the Orange County airport, get in that plane with me. You're going to have to believe in me to get in my plane, right? That's a bunch of people going, I believe in you. Pastor Mike, you said you can fly this. I believe in you because I'm taking my life and I'm putting it in your hands to fly me in the air, right, 20,000 feet above the surface of of, of the earth. That's a kind of belief that a lot of people don't have. Matter of fact, a better word for it, I don't want you to say I'm a Christian because I believe in God or I'm a Christian because I believe in Christ. 
You need to say, really what belief is, is to trust in him. That's a different thing, to trust in him, to say, I know that God is going to save because he cares about people. He's not even going to save demons. He's not going to save animals. He's not going to save this creation. He's going to burn all of it up, but he'll go down and rescue human beings that bear his image if they would get on board and say, I'm going to let him take us to this new reality, this new place, this kingdom that's coming. But you have to transfer your trust. You need to have an assurance that what God has done and what he said and what Christ came to accomplish, I am trusting fully in that. And that changes everything about your life. We're going to talk about this, but where's this all taking us? Well, of course, it takes us away from sin. That's the point. You and I are supposed to live from now until we die with less sin in our life, doing less of what damaged the image of God at the outset, right? To take us increasingly away from sin and temptation in our lives. It's going to take us away from the consequences of sin. One day, God is going to judge the world. All your classmates can do things that God says not to do, and they can do it without any punishment right now. But the Bible says one day they will get that punishment. Romans chapter 2 says you're going to store up judgment, wrath, anger of God. For the coming day of God's wrath, his anger. There's a judgment day coming. And the Bible says, listen, not only will I keep you from sinning as much as you would have sinned if you didn't trust in me, but I'm going to keep you from the consequences of sin and you won't have to suffer hell because Christ has come to suffer hell for you. And ultimately, the good thing is we're looking for a place where there is no reference to sin. There's no damage to the image of God. There's no physical problems in our bodies. There's no hurricanes and typhoons, typhoons and earthquakes. There's nothing that goes wrong. It's a new place. 2 Peter 3.13 says it's a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And you can't get there without putting your trust in Christ. I know it's early in the week to talk about this, but None of the rest of what I'm about to talk about throughout this week is going to make any sense unless you're willing to say, I am going to put my trust in Christ to fix the problem of what it is to be damaged by sin. We're going to look at sin throughout the week and why the image of God should change your view on a lot of things. And you ought to be ready because everything in the world is going to tell you to think differently about the things we're going to talk about that the image of God is going to correct. Just gave you a couple tonight right? Environmentalism, we're not going to be environmentalists, right? Good stewards of the earth, fine, right? We're not going to be all about a body consciousness where that's all that matters. That shouldn't be the top priority. We shouldn't really care ultimately about that. It has some value, but it's limited compared to what God wants to do in connecting with the image of God in you, and we'll talk about that. What matters, though, is that we make sure that we're in this thing, and we're not just going to church or going to youth group or going to summer camp. I want you to consider the claims of Christ tonight. Make sure that you can leave tonight saying, I trust in Christ because I know he's taken the penalty for my sin and I trust in him. Let me talk to God right now and lead you in a prayer. God, just starting out, throwing a lot out there, but I know there's going to be opportunities this week for people to think about where they stand with you. We all like to think like everybody I've ever met that I'm sure, I'm sure I'm right with God. Surely God likes me, God loves me, I'm sure it's fine, but God, you've made it very clear. We will never dwell in a new heaven or new earth where righteousness dwells unless we get our relationship with you right until we start this reparation, this, this reparative process, this restoration process of seeing our hearts made new. So I ask God that you'd help us even to start to think right now about where we stand with you so that tomorrow night, and Tuesday and Wednesday, we can look at the issues that relate to the image of God and say, God, I'm ready to follow you and do what you ask us to do. 
because I know it's an investment in eternity. Help us to lay up treasure in heaven, but first help us to make sure we're going there as we consider what Christ did on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.